We're in our series, Postcards from Paul. And over the past few weeks, we have been watching and joining in the journeys of Paul and his associates as they have gone on their first and then their second missionary trip. In fact, we have a map up here that we've been following on the second trip. Uh, you might remember it started off going back through Asia Minor, through Iconium and Antioch, and up to Troas. There at Troas, you might remember, there was a vision. And Paul had a vision from a man who said, he called him a man from Macedonia. And he said, come to Macedonia and help us. Macedonia was Greece. It was Europe, the first venture of the gospel into Europe. And so Paul was obedient. And he headed across the waters there to the town of Philippi in Macedonia in present-day Greece. And how was they greeted? How were they greeted from God's calling? Well, they were lied about. They were... Uh, they were stripped, they were beaten, they were flogged, they were thrown in prison, and they were told to leave town. How's that for a welcome? <laughs> welcome to Macedonia, as they might have said. So, after leaving town, but yet having the start of a church, they headed about 90 to 100 miles west to, you see there, the port city of Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica was an important city. It was on that um, Dacian Way, that major east-west highway. It was also a major north-south highway that came through there. So it was at the crossroads of two major roads uh, that would have been traveled in the Roman Empire. It was also a port city. And so it was it's really a very, very important city. And it was about 90 to 100 miles, as we said. Think a trip from here to almost here to Pittsburgh um, by, by foot, journeying to Thessalonica. And they came there and they found a city that was um, well populated, probably about 65 to 200,000, 65,000 to 200,000, depending on which guesses you believe. Uh, so it was a significant city. It was a city that would have been inhabited by more than just one culture. In fact, there were those Greeks and non-Greeks and Egyptian, and they all brought their religions into Philippi or Thessalonica. And so it was a mishmash of religions, a mishmash of people. And they were together there in this important city. It was the capital of this province. So it was, it was important in trade, and it was important in government. And so it was there that Paul entered into. Um, very few, though, relics or historical, um, archaeological uh, history is there because this is one of the very few biblical cities that's still standing. It's been there since the time of the Bible. And so everything that was several thousand years ago is underneath the current city of Thessaloniki. And so Thessaloniki is standing there, and there's not a whole lot that has been dug up. But there are a few things. In fact, uh, when Paul entered town, he would have entered in through the, the Ark of the City. And here is the, the Ark of Triumph, the Triumphal Ark of Kamara. Now, this would not have been the Ark that, that he would have gone through. This was actually built in 3000, or 305 uh, A.D. when Galeas was crowned emperor. And so he, he built this, but it still stands from 305 A.D. And you can even get up close and see some of the writings and some of the pictures that are on there. But it had been a very arc, very similar that 
Paul would have gone through. He very well, though, could have been in this next place, the Agora, the marketplace. In 1962, a bus station was being moved in town, and they started digging up, and they, they dug up the marketplace that had been the, the center of activity from probably about three centuries B.C. to five centuries A.D. So it's very possible that in this marketplace was where Paul might have been uh, doing his tent-making trade, might have been selling tents and Paul and Silas, maybe in this very place. It would have been a place of much action, much activity. This, uh, imagine a city of 65,000 to 200,000 people. It's a busy place. And so they would have been there. They might have also been at the Odeon. Here's the next picture. This was built in the first or second centuries, depending on the, what you think, trying to read the dates that are at the, at the site. But this is uh, much smaller than, than some of the Colosseums or theaters we've see, seen before. But this is for, maybe for music, for singing competitions, uh, singing exercises, musical shows, poetry competitions, and things like that. We have another picture shows you a little closer that... You can see it says it seats about 400. And I do what I do. I, you know, I know how many people can sit in a pew. And so I looked at the size of those and I counted up and yeah, I think about 400 can fit in there. And of course, if you sit all your purses next to it in coats, now we're only going to get about 300, but uh, that's the way it goes. So that, but it's built for about 400 and that would have been a place where maybe it was there when Paul um, was in the city. Maybe it was being built during this time. This was a busy time, an industrious time. Or maybe it was just after, but it was very similar. So imagine yourselves being with Paul. You're part of his team, and you're entering into the city. Up to a couple hundred thousand people. Busy place. Marketplace active. Doing the work that you do. But Paul went about doing what he does. And we find that in Acts chapter 17, verse 2. Acts 17, 2. It says this. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. What we see here is the typical manner in which Paul would do his ministry, the pattern that he had developed. First of all, he would come into the city, and then he would find the synagogue, if indeed there was one, and there must have been at least enough Jews in Thessalonica that he was able to find a synagogue. He would reason with them. He would explain the scriptures. He would open up the Old Testament. And he would see the prophecies and he would point them to Jesus Christ. And then he would persuade them and say, and this is, this is the one we've been talking about. And that we saw him. And we saw him alive and dead again and then alive again. And then we would see this typical pattern of some, some responding. Here we're told that there was a few Jews, some of the Jews, a large number of God-fearing Greeks, and quite a few prominent women. Notice the diversity of this group. Multicultural, multinational, men, women, prominent, probably means wealthy women. Not so prominent 
probably not so wealthy. It was a, an eclectic group uh, together that had responded and become part of this way of following Jesus Christ. So this pattern continues as it did in other cities. Unfortunately, more pattern continued, and we find that in verse 5. It says this, but other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. So the pattern of coming in and going to the synagogue and preaching and arguing and reasoning and debating and persuading and seeing folks converted was also followed up by the pattern of some rejected. And they decided not only to reject, not only would they reject the gospel, but they would persecute those who were telling this story. And so they persecute. And I, I just wonder, you know, it's happened again and again. We see this in Lystra and Derby and, and, and Iconium. And we see it in, and we saw it in Antioch. We see this in Philippi. This is kind of the same, same old, same old, same old. I wonder if Paul ever questioned his methods. <laughs> you know, I keep doing it the same way, the same way. And I keep getting the same results. But he pushed on. He pushed on. says here, they went to Jason's place. Apparently, Jason was um, giving Paul an apartment or a house or a room or something to stay in. Maybe the whole team. But they needed some help. Probably because there wasn't enough Jewish individuals in the community to really make a difference. They, 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 couldn't, they couldn't get anybody really to do anything unless they got some other people to join their cause. So it says they rounded up some bad characters. Sometimes you can't beat the wording of the King James Version. I love this where it says in the King James, they took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. <laughs> certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, is the, they would say. Lewd, evil. Wicked. The baser sort really is just common. The, the folks who are hanging around the market, you know, the guys who are, who are just there kind of, you know, kind of wanderers and unemployed maybe. Maybe the shysters. You know, hey, I got a watch to sell you in the back of my camel or something like that. I don't know. But they just, they were, they were the lewd fellows of the, of the baser sort. They took them. And in verse 6, it says this. But when they, the crowd and the lewd fellows of the base resort, did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them to his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying, there is another king, one called Jesus. Can you imagine if you were one of Jason's friends, he invited you over for some pizza and maybe to play some video games. All of a sudden, you get a knock at the door, and you open up the door, and here are these lewd fellows of a baser sort. <laughs> Say, who are you? We're lewd fellows of a baser sort, and we've come to get you. And they, they pull them out because they couldn't find Paul and Silas. And they said, you're, you're giving harbor to these. 
These men who are teaching things that are unlawful and that there's another king other than Caesar. And once again, false accusations to some degree, but to some degree very accurate. They were saying there is one greater than Caesar. There is one that even Caesar reports and accounts to. And he is the true king of kings and lord of lords. And by the way, his name is Jesus Christ and we've, we've, we've seen him, we've touched him, we've, we've been with him. And today he's with his father in heaven. And so they, in essence, were, were, were telling the truth. But it says in here that these men have caused trouble all over the world, all because of a few guys. Once again, I go back to the wording, though, the King James Version that I've always loved, that verse 7. It says that these have turned the world upside down and have come hither also. Some of your other versions probably have that same language because really that's what it means here. They went into community after community after community and the world is getting turned upside down one community at a time. People are finding that they have a new understanding of God and who he is. Things have changed. The way God relates to man is now different. And God's love for him, for me, for you, for everybody that Paul shares with is available and it changes how we interact with God. And it was changing a lot. And it indeed was turning the world upside down. One community at a time. <laughs> world changers. World changers. What's it like to be a world changer? A few weeks ago, I shared with you, um, I kind of let slip a little bit, our new or revised mission statement as a church. One that in September here we're going to be rolling out, and you'll see it on print and different things, but just to give you a little taste of what's coming. And it was this, becoming a community of authentic Christ followers, compelled to change our world. We were talking about authenticity and community. But the second half of this talks about our purpose to change our world. Be world changers. What this is saying is true, authentic, saved, born again, however you want to put it. People whose lives have been changed by Jesus Christ have an obligation. We are compelled, compelled to change our world. And that cannot always be easy. And sometimes it's hard to accept. I was reminded of that when I was thinking about a song that got popular. In fact, it was the number one hit on the pop stations about 10 years ago by an artist named John Mayer. The words go like this. Me and all my friends were all misunderstood. They say we stand for nothing, and there's no way we ever could. Now we see everything that's going wrong with this world and those who lead it. We just feel like we don't have the means to rise above and beat it. So we keep waiting, waiting, waiting for the world to change. We keep waiting, waiting, waiting for the world to change. It's hard to beat the system 
when you're standing at the distance. We keep waiting, waiting on the world to change. The song ends with this. One day, one day, our generation is going to roll the population. So we keep waiting, waiting, waiting on the world to change. Does that sound like the mindset of a world changer to you? I don't think so. I don't think someone who sits back and says it's hard to beat the system when you're standing at a distance is a world changer. A world changer says, I'm going to get involved. I'm going to roll up my sleeve. I'm no longer going to stand at a distance. And I'm going to get involved and make some difference in somebody's life, in somebody's world. I'm going to be a world changer, not by standing back, but by getting involved. The question I've been asked by a number of people, and actually we wrestled with when we were talking about our mission statement, was, well, what is our world? If we are compelled to change our world, we're not satisfied to wait until the world changes. You know, how much time do we have? I'm getting old. You know, I want to see the world. I want to see, I want to see something happen now. So what is our world? Well, let me ask you, what is your world? What is your world? For some of us, it might be grand. It might be something like, you know, ending world hunger or ending some disease that impacts the world. But that's probably not most of us. Most of us have our world of our home. Most of us have our world of our neighborhood, our streets, our neighbors. Some of you, your world is your growth group. If you're a growth group leader, man, you've got, you got a world that you can minister to you and you can help change. If you're a Sunday school teacher, or better yet, if you were in Bible school this week and you were a leader, your world was those four and five-year-olds. <laughs> your world was those third graders. Your world was those fifth graders. And anything I can do to make their world change, I have to do. I want to be a world changer. Sometimes that's easy. And we can think we can do it. But sometimes there's opposition. And that's what Paul finds. Paul finds opposition, and he finds when people start saying, I want to change the world for the, gospel, for the good of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, sometimes opposition can come. Reformer, politician, abolitionist William Wilberforce said this, a private faith that does not act in the face of opposition is no faith at all. A private faith that doesn't act in the face of opposition is no faith at all. Are we willing to take our faith despite opposition and reach out into others? I look at this and I say, okay, how can we do this? And I start looking at the life of Paul and I see at least five characteristics quickly in his life that I think I see made him a world changer, that made him and his people, his group, his team, changers that were people who would turn the world upside down. And you might want to write these down because I think these apply to us as well as they do to, to Paul. The first one is this. It's pardon. It's pardon. Paul understood where he stood in the grace of Jesus Christ. He understood what had been done for him. He understood where he was and where he, was, where he is now. He had a deep, deep abiding faith and, and personal relationship with Jesus Christ based on this debt of gratitude in his heart for what Christ had done for him. In Romans chapter 7, Paul says, what a wretched man am I. 
What a wretched man am I. Who can save me from this body of sin? Then he says this, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. When he wrote to Timothy, his protege, and he was talking about himself, he said this, I'm a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. And then he wrote in verse 15, but here's a trustworthy statement, saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am worst. To start to be a world changer, we first have to have this understanding, acceptance, and deep relationship with the Lord based on what he's done for us. A gratitude, a love for him. Because if you're going to change the world for Jesus Christ, he's got to have changed you first. He has to have changed you before you can be a world changer. Second thing is purpose. We have to have a, a purpose. What's your purpose? If, you're, if, you're, if your world is your, your, your street, what's your purpose? If your world, your world is your family, what's your purpose? Why did God put you here? If your world is working with those of addiction, with addictions, what's your purpose? Are you passionate about that purpose? I can tell you Paul was passionate about his purpose. He knew it. In fact, in the beginning of this missionary trip, in Acts 13, verse 2, the church was together. They were praying. They were fasting. The Holy Spirit spoke, and he said, set aside Paul and Barnabas for the work for which I had called them. He knew what his work was. Acts 9, 15, even before, long before this, right after, Paul had had his Damascus Road encounter. The Lord spoke to Ananias and said, this is the man I've chosen to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. When Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, he says, I am compelled, I am obligated to both the Greek and the non-Greek. I have to do it. What's God placed in your heart that you've got to do? What do you got to do? What wrecks you? What's God calling you to do? The third thing is Partners. Boy, as I've read this, I've been convicted by this. I've, I've, I've been, I maybe understood again how important it is to understand nobody is going to change the world alone. And Paul didn't try to change the world alone. In fact, if you go back and read the book of 1 Thess Thessalonians, which is written to the church at Thessalonica, it says, Paul and Silas and Timothy too. There are 89 verses in that book. Three times Paul uses the word I, never me. It's us and we again and again and again. Start looking at those that Paul worked with. The list goes on and on. Barnabas, Silas, Timothy. Remember Lydia in Philippi who, who housed him. Aquila and Priscilla. Luke, Titus, Epaphrodites, Phoebe, Jason in Thessalonica who housed him. Go read Romans 16. You see a complete list well, not a complete list, but a long list of name after name after name after name of people who are in ministry with Paul. If something's on your heart, have you found others that have the same interest? Something, some others that have the same thing that's wrecking them? In 1783, there was a group of Quakers, friends in England, and they were being wrecked by slavery and the slave trade that was happening. And they, were, they formed the Friends Committee on the abolition of the slave trade, to get rid of it. And they, they worked, and they had this committee, and they worked, and they worked, and they worked, and nothing happened. Nothing happened. It's because they were 
they weren't really influential. <laughs> they weren't real highly regarded. Them and the Methodists and others were kind of, uh, they're a little wacky. They, you know, this thing about, about living out your Christianity and your faith, you know, you really don't need that. So someone started thinking outside the box. They said, what if we include some of the really good Anglicans who are also as passionate about the slave trade as we are? And so they reached out to some, some folks in the Anglican church who were leaders, but were leaders in the abolitionist movement. But you know what that did? By, by calling in and, and by being able to bring in others of the Anglican church, that gave him access to the leading Anglican abolitionist in parliament, William Wilberforce. All of a sudden, Wilberforce became the voice of the Friends movement. And he took up others. It wasn't just friends. But for years and years and years, they strategized, how together can we do this? We don't have to do it ourselves. We can bring in the Anglicans. We can, his evangelical Anglican, Wilbur Wilberforce, come join us. And he did. Somebody else who was really smart, someone ahead of their time, launched what might have been the first um, uh, campaign to, to, uh, to, 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 to raise money through the mail. Fundraiser. Someone said, who's got a printing press? And they started printing up letters. They said, we have 50,000 Quakers. And they said, we can start there. And they started sending out these letters. They said, we need money to help fight this slave trade. They sent it out. This is in the 1700s. They got back money from 2,000 people from 39 different countries to fight slave trade. And so they started to change the hearts of those in England. And it took a long time. It took a while. It wasn't until 1807 when the slave trade was actually stopped. And it wasn't until 1833 that slavery was abolished. It took time, but it took partnerships. A few weeks ago, we had some folks come to us and say, boy, we really would like to have a group that deals, helps us deal in our recovery ministries with those, the families of those who are addicted. How can we do that? And so many times I've seen when one person comes or two people comes, come to us, it's like, Okay, but, you know, if one of you move away or if one of you, if something happens, you get sick, you know, who's going to carry on the ministry? So he says, okay, bring to us people who have the same passion you have. Together, in the hospitality room a few couple weeks ago, five individuals who have a passion for ministry to families of addicted came together and said, let's do it. Five. Maybe that's going to be the new number. <laughs> You've got to have five people passionate. Let's get going. Let's do it in a partnership. Let's do it. Third and fourthly, power. Paul had power. Right from the beginning, in Acts chapter 9, it says Paul increased in power in the way he could argue and, 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 and connect with those and, and minister to those around him. His power increased and increased. He wrote to Timothy, again, 2 Timothy 1.7, God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. Paul had a spirit of power. You have to have it if you're going to change the world. You've got to have that power that only comes through the source from where Paul said, from God, from the Holy Spirit. In fact, it was the Holy Spirit that would come upon us and that we would receive power. That was the spirit that Paul had. We're told in Acts 
Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with power. Finally, fifth characteristic is persistence. You know, persistence combined with power, combined with partners and purpose and pardon, is necessary to change the world. Let me tell you something. If you want to host or plan a church picnic, you probably don't need God's power. (laughs) You probably don't need persistence. But if you want to change the world, you're going to need these kind of things. There There are pastors and pulpits today standing without God's power. Sadly. My prayer is we always have God's power ministering to us and through us here. And it results in persistence, never giving up. Paul never hesitated. He pushed forward, even though he got the same results again and again and again. Because even though he was run out of town, even though he was beaten, thrown in jail, in every case, the embryo of that new church was birthed. In Philippi, it was Lydia, the jailer, their families, maybe the slave girl who they cast a demon out of. In Thessalonica, now we got one name. There's Jason. And there might be, surely were others from what we know. Even though he was run out of town again, he was persistent. 2 Corinthians 11, he says, hey, I've worked much harder. I've been in prison much more frequently. I've been flogged more severely, exposed to death. I've received lashes, beaten with rods, pelted with stones, shipwrecked. But he kept on going until the job was done. Pardon, purpose, partners, power, persistence. It's interesting. You're saying, Pastor Steve, I know you. You're not smart enough to come up with all those five Ps. <laughs> You're right. You're right. Actually, those were written by one of the biographers of William Wilberforce. He says, here's five things I've noticed in Wilberforce's life. Pardon. He loved the Lord and what God had done for him. He had a purpose. In fact, two years after his conversion, which was after walking away from the Lord when after he was an earlier, had grown up as a Methodist for a few years, He says, my two great objects in life, the suppression and abolition of the slave trade and the restoration of manners. Now you say manners? Well, manners in that English was morality. He said, I want to get rid of this blight on our country. And I want us country to start becoming and acting more gracious. And he took on a lot of other things. Child labor, They had children, four and five-year-old, working eight, ten hours. It was said that in England at this time, in London, 25% of the single women were prostitutes. He took that on. Drinking, drunkenness, drunkenness was was a problem. (laughs) They said that a lot of parliament would show up drunk. It was so bad. He took on all these as a moral issue, as a manners issue. He was called by his biographer the most successful social reformer in history. A man with a purpose. A man who partnered even with us, our friends. Power, 
They said he prayed and read his Bible like you wouldn't believe. Wrote some great stuff. Go look up some Wilberforce quotes. Go read some of his material. Read his biography. Persistence. It was in 1833 when the slavery was totally done away with in England. He was given the word on his deathbed that had finally passed, and he died the next day. That's fighting to the end. <laughs> That's fighting to the end. That's never given up. What's your cause? What's, what's your purpose? What has God called you to do that you are going to, first of all, have to understand, I can only do this when I'm when, knowing my, my, that I'm completely surrendered to Jesus Christ. What is it that I says, God, you've got to tell me the purpose. What is it that wrecks my heart? What is it that I need to share? What is it I need to be involved in? Who can do it with me? God, give me your power and help me stay with this through to the end. I think if Paul were to write his backside of his postcard to us today, he'd say, hey, another interesting trip to Thessalonica this time. Another rough crowd. <laughs> it's never easy being a world changer. But we have the start of a great church. Gotta love that Jason. I think he could be something special. And I think they could be something special. World changers. Be a world changer. Eric McDaxis, he actually penned the long biography of Wilberforce. But in this book I have of stories, he writes about Wilberforce. And he closes his chapter here with this. How God used William Wilberforce to change the world is almost unbelievable. One man who gave his talents and time and energies to God's purposes was able to do so much. But we who admire him shouldn't compare ourselves to him directly. We should rather ask ourselves, am I using what God has given me for his purposes? Do I have a relationship with him so that I know he is leading me? Am I obeying him in all areas of my life or trying to do so so that I can know that I am in a real relationship with him? It was in, in his honestly asking and answering these few questions that lay at the heart of the greatness of the great William Wilberforce. And I think of the great Apostle Paul. And I think of the great folk here who want to be world changers. I want to be part of a church and a community who changes the world. Oh, we may not change everything. We can change the areas that God has called us to minister to. Let's stand together. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, I just wonder for a minute you could just, in your mind, maybe picture a face or maybe even a name of somebody or a group of people or a place that you can change, that you can be and have an impact, that maybe you can recruit some others who are as concerned about this issue as you are, and you can take Jesus Christ into that place. Maybe it's your home, maybe it's your school, maybe it's, maybe it's your neighborhood, maybe it's your work, maybe it's your growth group, maybe it's your fourth grade Sunday school class, that God's called you to. Maybe you have a name. Hey, that's a Lydia. That's a Jason. 
Or maybe it's just a face, a, a Philippian jailer. Maybe it's a people. Father, I just, this morning, lift up to you these words, this challenge that has come to us. Lord, help us, help us to be world changers. Help us not to stand by and at a distance and let the world change. Lord, help us to be part of the solution. Help us to make a difference in the lives of those who are hurting those who have been neglected, the forgotten ones. Help us to share the gospel of Jesus with those who have not heard. Lord, right now, our world, a lot of it's Jamaica. Lift that world up to you right now. And Dave and Sean and our friends' churches down there. But Lord, we have other areas of influence. We just pray, Lord, that you would Put on our hearts the passion to persevere, not to give up, to follow it through all the way to the end until the job's done. Wherever we're serving, whatever we may do, and may we do it with the strength, the power that comes through your Holy Spirit, the partnership of others, knowing our purpose, and based on our relationship with you, we bring honor and glory to you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Go this week in the grace of our Lord Savior. Make a difference. Be a world changer for somebody as you go. God bless. You're dismissed.